From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. You're listening to Germ Warfare with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Germ Warfare at tntradio.live. It's my email address. Thank you to uh, everybody who has been emailing me. Got an email from somebody in, is it Cairns? Alex Cairns? Is that right? Is that how I pronounce it? Your side of the world? Uh, thank you for, for the email. Uh, jump into the live chat as always. It is hot here in Cape Town. It is hot, hot, hot. 35 degrees right now. Let me have a look. Yeah, 35 degrees Celsius. Ooh, I got the aircon going. Been struggling this week with uh, with rolling blackouts, but I <laughs> I brought a mobile inverter with me. I've plugged everything into it now because I'm not at home. Let's hope that <laughs> everything is going to be smooth. All right, uh, if you are watching via the video feed on YouTube or Rumble, wherever it is, hello. Nice, nice of you to join us. I'll be with you for the next hour with Alex and uh, Anoop, who's from Nepal. He's from Nepal. We were just chatting. That is a place I know nothing about. So I need to learn about Nepal. I think I'm going to do that in the coming in the coming months, just so that I, I feel a little bit more knowledgeable. Uh, the only thing I know about Nepal is that you can fly there. It's got the, like one of the world's most dangerous airports, and you climb a mountain, a really high mountain that's somewhere there. Okay, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> my name is Jim. This is uh, Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. The latest headlines waiting for you. I follow the news pretty much throughout the day. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's been a long time, I think about three years, more or less. Susan Crockford, thank you for joining me again in the trenches. Yep, it's a pleasure to be here. It's yep. really early where you are. It is at six o'clock in the morning, still dark out, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of it as being sort of getting in the mood for the Arctic where it's dark 24 hours a day. A lot yeah. of people don't remember that, but as well as being cold in the winter, it's actually dark and that that's really a significant part of the, uh, of the environment in the winter. Well, Chatting to you for me is absolutely fascinating. Very few people talk about polar bears, but before we do that, let's just quickly talk about your background. Well, um, I'm a zoologist, and so uh, I've got a PhD, and I've worked for more than 40 years in the field. Um, I've My primary way of earning a living is actually identifying animal bones um, from archaeological sites and also from biological contexts like stomach contents and fecal samples of other animals. Um, but evolution is actually my primary interest and it's kind of what, um, what, what I follow in terms of how I look at the world. But your, one of your strengths though is polar bears. Yes, yes, and I've been writing. I've been writing about polar bears uh, on my blog that's called Polar Bear Science since 2012, and I've written several books and a lot of um, um, uh, white papers and other articles about about polar bears. So I've I've really been diving into the literature. I don't do um, actual hands-on research with polar bears, but. Um, what I do have is a really in-depth um, knowledge of the literature. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that a lot of people wouldn't really do hands-on research with polar bears be because of just of the nature of it. It's, it's a very 
difficult climate. They're they're obviously dangerous animals, and it's not it's not an easy place to to do research. The Arctic. No, no, it isn't, and and it is. It's one of the reasons why I think um, polar bear field researchers are regarded are highly regarded because they do work in a really harsh environment, and also they're working with dangerous animals. But at the same time, the work that I do is important because the the literature that they've produced, all of the research that they've done and written about over, you know, since the 1960s is, is really a lot. And most people wouldn't have time to really get, get into what all of that entails. And so my, my contribution to the field is actually as kind of an external reviewer and someone who, who really has a big picture um, of what's going on. Okay, well, let's take a bird's eye view of that big picture. Let's start off with the, the most basic question. Are polar bears doing fine? Yes, right now they seem to be doing really, um, really well, actually. I mean, they're um, in a few populations. Um, the field researchers think that there's a population decline, but it, it really isn't all that clear whether that's so or not. And in other populations, the numbers are going up or they're, or they're stable. And so the, what we were told 10 or 15 years ago that they were all going to die if the sea ice declined anymore um, turned out not to be true. And, and that's because those predictions that they made at that time were based on some assumptions that turned out not to be true. And mm. now we know that when the sea ice declines a bit that other things happen or the bears move around and they they adjust and it, and it's not um, as catastrophic as it was originally thought to be. It sounds like a stupid question, but why are polar bears important? Well, you know, they're, they're important to the um, human caused climate change narrative. They've, they've made the polar bear into their icon as an animal that they can show the public and say, oh, look, you know, you should care about this cute polar bear cub and whether it's going to be here or not. Um, and that it's, they're calling it a canary in the coal mine. Everything's a canary in the coal mine, but um, saying that because if there was warming, that the Arctic areas would warm first and, and more, more pronounced. And therefore they would be an early indicator of what kind of warming would be happening to the rest of the world. And so it was promoted in that way as, as a kind of an early warning system. And as I said, that really turned out not to be true that the, the warming um, apparently has continued to happen, but the bears are doing fine. How many bears are there? Well, it depends on who you ask and how you do the counting. By my reckoning, I figure somewhere in the neighborhood of 39 to 40,000. 
but they are really difficult to count. And some populations, particularly the ones living in um, off the coast of Russia, um, really haven't been counted. And so we're, all we can really do is make an estimate. And so, but it's, it's in that range. Okay, but how are those estimates uh, derived? How do they get to those numbers? Well, you know, what, what they have really done is in a few areas, what they can do is put uh, collars, you know, tags or collars on the animals and track them. And then they go in a, at a particular time of year. And um, most of the time these days, what they do is use um, airplanes. And when they're on, when the bears are on land and they go in and count them that way. But, and then they extrapolate. So they try and say, okay, we're seeing um, 50 or 60 bears here. We figure there's probably another, you know, how many others that we can't see and others that are going to be in other areas that we can't get to and come to a number. But it really is very, um, very much an estimate of how many are there. They, they, they simply can't count in every animal. I get the impression, though, that due to the climate change alarmist narrative, they would prefer to undercount. Well, yes, and I, th I think that that really has been a problem for, for the last um, 15 years or so, is that whenever these new estimates come out, there is um, an incentive for them to um, use um, mathematical models that will give a lower estimate rather than a higher estimate. And, you know, that's every, every time, one of the things that's astounded me is that every time and for every population where they've done a new estimate, they've used a different mathematical model. It's never the same. And so it makes it really difficult to compare one to the other and even to compare one that they did in 2020 to one that was done in 1990, for example. It's because it's always changing, it's gonna be very difficult to say, well, it is the difference between those two numbers because you're doing a different method of calculation or are there really more or less than what you've said? Anyway, it, it does become a, a real problem. Yeah, but I mean, the whole field of climate change appears to be just driven by modeling anyway. I mean, a lot of it is just thumb sucked, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so much of the modeling, which I, I personally don't consider to be science, you know, you're, you're trying to make, you're, you're trying to, to create a mathematical guess instead of just saying, I'm guessing. And the mm -hmm. same thing is true for, um, these population estimates. It's, you know, it, it's one way of, of trying to figure out how many are there, um, but it's the least scientific of the things that are going on in the field. But I mean, I, I suppose polar bears are one of those um, variables, the vectors to one's heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the one thing that you can grab the attention of. Ah, oh, the polar bears are suffering because of you. you. You're burning too many light bulbs and driving your car. If you stop driving your car, you'll save the polar bears. And nobody wants to see dead polar bears. 
It's, it's, a, it's a very emotive Exactly. It's, um, a, it's an appeal to thing. emotion yeah. rather than mm. to, you know, rational thinking. And that that is why it's been really critically important, I think, for what I've been doing is to, to keep insisting on br bringing the rational, a rational approach to it because they keep saying to people, don't think about this issue, just feel, you know, feel. Yeah. Um, Neil Diamond wrote a song about it, Don't Think, Feel. He's got a lot to answer for, I think, for that particular kind <laughs> of sentiment. It, in that, uh, you know, so, so my objective is to actually get people to do more thinking and less feeling. Forget about how cute the polar bear looks. You know, this is about an animal that's surviving in a harsh environment. We'll come back to the polar bears in a moment, but something I just realized that because the numbers seem to be lowish, I mean, 40 or 50,000, whatever, those are not very high numbers, as opposed to, say, penguins, which are ridiculously high numbers, so they don't care about penguins. Yes. Well, I mean, the um, part of it is bir just birds, I think. You know, it's they're just not as appealing to mm. people as animals with fur. I don't know why that <laughs> That's is, true. but, but, Actually, you know, you buy true. for, for kids, you buy a fluffy animal and even mm. for kids you buy, um, it's a penguin chick, right. With its downy or early feathers. And so that it looks like fur. So it's something mm. about an innate appeal for that, um, young furry animal. That's part of it. Um, but, but also that, you know, they're, they're, their whiteness, I, I think, has, has got this kind of virgin appeal. And, you know, they've they've been used for quite a long time yeah. as um, advertising. Susan, in terms of in terms of their growth or their numbers, um, how how have they grown over the let's say the last 15 to 20 years? Well, it, as I said, it's it's really hard to say. Um, that in the last 15 years or so, I would say that the numbers have probably gone up probably by five or 6,000, something in that neighborhood. Um, but what most people don't realize is that um, the bears were um, put on the international kind of endangered species list by the um, International Union of for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. Mm. So that's the international body that puts together the red list. And so they were put on, um, considered vulnerable to extinction in 1973. And by, by 1986, that classification had been dropped to least concern because population numbers have about doubled. So numbers have continued to rise since then, and the and the the increase in population size has slowed in the last fifteen years or so, but it appears to be still increasing. In other words, the concern initially was because the population had been um, decimated by overhunting. Once they put um, hunting controls in place, the population quickly went up and then has continued to slowly rise, which is what you would expect. Oh, that's a very interesting argument because 
traditionally hunting and conservation tend to go hand in hand. I, I hunt, for example, here yeah. in South Africa, um, and it's a very critical aspect of, of conservation. Uh, but, yeah. but I think it's, I suppose it's different in the, in the Arctic, I guess. Well, I mean, and what's happened is that there's, um, the rules are different in different places. Um, in, in Russia, hunting was banned completely in 19, 1956. They were the first to ban hunting. Um, and then uh, Norway banned hunting completely. But in Canada and Greenland in particular, there is still um, hunting allowed by Aboriginal people. So they're still hunting, but there's there's regulations involved, and so that and that was really the critical step, was getting regulations in place so that there wasn't this just wanton. There was kind of wanton yeah. um, slaughter that was going on, and that was really what had to be stopped. And so there is some some hunting that's going on, but um, with the regulations, there still is um, a, a, very, a gradual increase. And I think that is what you would expect because the numbers were so yes. low when those regulations yeah. were first put in place. No, that's a good point because I mean, like, we know that the dodo was hunted into extinction. So clearly yeah. you, can, you can destroy you can the numbers if, yes, you, if you absolutely. don't. Absolutely. Yeah. And that yeah. was what the concern was. And I think that's why mm. Russia put the, um, complete ban on in 1956. That was almost 20 years before mm. any other country did because they realized that that there was so much overhunting that um, it, it was getting to a critical um, level. All right, Susan Crockford, I'll be back with you shortly. My name is Jim, this is TNT. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT Radio. to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. All right, Susan, so one of the very big uh, narratives that's 
constantly um, being pushed into the media and onto us the whole time is that the ice caps are melting and this is causing devastation to the polar bears. Your work suggests that A, polar bears are not being affected by any changes in the ice uh, because they can adapt and they can move around and B, there isn't really any evidence that the ice is actually melting to any significant degree. In fact, a lot of it seems to suggest in some areas it's growing. Well, one of the things when you look, so we've got um, data on sea ice in the Arctic from um, about 1979. Now, there's data from before that, but it's in a slightly different form. And I think that's why they focus on 1979 is because it's the data is consistent. It's, it's coming in and they're comparing apples to apples. So fine, we start at 1979. And there definitely has been a decline in, in sea ice and in summer and in winter. But in winter, it's really not very much. You know, it's, it's been um, quite slight. In summer, it's, it's more. But one thing that you really don't hear about is, is that since 2007, the trend, you know, if you drew a line through all the points, the trend between the sea ice level in September between 2007 and 2023 is virtually flat. So there's been some up and down, but the overall trend between that for 17 years has been virtually flat. Now, that's not what the sea ice models predicted. They predicted a continuous decline, and it really isn't not is not what has been happening. What has been happening then? Well, as I said, there, there we've had some variation, we've had some up uh, some ups and downs, but that so nothing overall, catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, and so instead of what they were suggesting was that by twenty fifty, that we would be in a position where there would be virtually no ice in the Arctic during the summer. Just a little bit like across the top of Canada and Greenland. And that's all during the summer. And and even then, it, that would only have been for two or three weeks at most before the ice would have started to grow. But it, it really hasn't happened that way. We have, it hasn't dropped to anywhere near that kind of a low level. And, and so it's kind of put them on the back foot in terms of their narrative, because they keep pushing that the ice is declining, the ice is declining. And yes, if you, you know, draw a line from 1979 on a graph to 2023, you can make it be, you know, a declining line. But in fact, if you're looking at the, the most recent years, 17 years is a long time for there to be no decline in ice. And so it's, it's really, when you look at it that way, it's not surprising that bears in most places of the Arctic are doing really well. The one place where the decline has been pronounced is has been in the Barents Sea. So north of um, Norway, east of Greenland. In that area of the world, the ice in the summer has actually de declined very dramatically, but Ironically, that's one of the places where bears are doing really well. In fact, the bears are doing better 
in recent years in that area they're fatter they're you know they're having more cubs they're in better condition than they were in the 1980s and one of the reasons to explain that is you have to go back and the other part of the research that goes on is the people that are looking at what's called primary productivity that's the algae that live in the water and when there's less ice in the water in the summer the um, microscopic um, algae the plants and the tiny animals they um, grow more there's there's these blooms of algae and that provides more food for fish if there's more food for fish there's more fish and that means more food for seals. So the seals are doing better and that means there's more seals for polar bears. So it just works its way up the food chain so that there is lots of food for when the ice comes in the spring, when the bears really need it and they're ready to do their heavy feeding on the newborn seal pups that are born in the spring, then there's lots of seals for them to eat. And the way that polar bears work in, the, in their Arctic habitat is to eat as much as they can during that spring feeding and put on hundreds of pounds of fat so that they can survive the summer uh, when there's no food. So, so just for clarity, long... <laughs> yeah, no, just go for ask clarity me. What, what, what is it that they eat? What, what do they love eating? So you mentioned seals. Seals, yeah. So uh, primarily what's called a ring seal, which is a small, a small Arctic seal that uh, lives on the sea ice, but also a bearded seal, which is a much larger animal. But mostly they do eat a few adult animals, but mostly what they eat are the newborn pups. And the pups are born, um, depending on the area, about um, late March or April. And then they, but they stay on top of the ice as, as they grow and as the, the mothers nurse them. So it makes them um, an easy target for the bears to, to come along and just grab them. I know this isn't the topic of discussion, but you mentioned seals. Uh, how are they doing? Well, as far as I know, I mean, there, there are, there's less research being done, but that um, work that has been done is not indicating any catastrophic decline in, in seals. Um, it, so they seem to be doing fine. It's so interesting to me. Um, if you don't mind me just segueing for a moment, Susan, um, yeah. I, I stay, as you know, in South Africa, and one of the uh, big talking points in the animal world is uh, rhinos and elephants, right? Now, okay, yep. what's, inter what's interesting to me is there's a lot of doom and gloom around those animals too, but the, the data doesn't suggest that. I mean, elephants are doing really well, and um, rhinos are, are stable, put it that way, they're stable. But okay. it, seems, it seems to be the case to me that climate alarmism works best when they keep um, predicting doom and gloom for these animals, and then they want to blame us for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, again, it, it's this appeal to emotion, and they'll use, they'll use any animal to, to do that. And mm. People have an affinity to animals, and I think that all of those years we've we mentioned earlier when we were chatting about David Attenborough. Well, all of those documentary films that that he's made for decades, that that 
you know, p even people my age, we've grown up watching those documentaries and watching the, the animals that we would never be able to see. And that's given us an affinity for them and, and, and this um, emotional attachment. And I think that that's what these groups are doing in, in these appeals to emotion. They know that we, we grew up with those documentaries and that even if we've never seen an elephant in real life, that from those television programs, we've got that emotional connection to them. Yeah. And that's yeah. what they count on. Um, okay, so let's just create a thought experiment for a moment. If this, the Arctic ice were to rapidly get smaller, do you think that the polar bears would still adapt? Well, it, for one, it would depend. It would depend on how long it, it went on. If the, if the ice decreased um, to a very large amount in the springtime, then it might make a difference. Because as I said, that's when the bears depend on the ice um, to hunt seals. And, and from what we're seeing in the Barents Sea, where the summer ice has disappeared to a great extent, is that as long as there is ice in the springtime, then the bears are doing okay. So the summer ice can, can disappear completely. And it's really not going to affect them because what we have learned over these decades that, that the polar bears have been studied is that they don't really eat very much um, during the summertime anyway. Even if there is sea ice, they don't eat very much. And a part of the reason for that is that during the summer, the ice, even if there's ice around, it tends to be kind of broken up like there's more cracks in it. And, and more holes in it. And that means that any seals that are sitting on the ice have, have escape routes. They can, they can escape the polar bear creeping up on it. And so even if the bear is hunting, it's not apt to be successful very often. So mm -hmm. the whole, the whole um, biological system for the, for the bears is set up to eat as much as they can in the spring put on hundreds of pounds of fat that will take them over the summer. And then when the ice starts to freeze up in the, in the fall, which it always does, then they get a chance to feed a little bit more because the actual um, process of ice forming seems to attract the seals to it. It's, you know, a con con uh, complicated um, process, but, the actual ice formation attracts the, the seals to the ice edge and the bears get an opportunity to do some, some kind of top up feeding in the fall. And then during the winter, they don't actually eat very much either. Because in terms it's of, dark and cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just in terms of in terms of their, uh, their habitat, where are they most densely concentrated in terms of population groups? And do they generally stay in those areas or do they uh, migrate. Yeah, they do generally stay in in particular areas, and and the uh, researchers have kind of broken down the Arctic into nineteen um, different um, subpopulations. They call them, and 
they more or less stay in in those general areas and the most dense areas of the arctic are the areas near the coastline where where it's um where it's still very shallow so what they the kind of ice that they need is what they call first year ice like the ice that forms between fall and spring so and that generally is not more than about two meters thick and and the ice that's over the shallow continental shelf that's you know you find around say hudson bay and all, just at the edge of the arctic the edge of the con the land masses in the arctic that's where the bears are most concentrated because that's where the most seals are and the areas where the ice gets really thick and and right in the center of the arctic basin like right near the north pole there's not very many there partly because it the water is deep and there's uh, there are some seals but not many how how dangerous to humans are polar bears well it depends you know like it in um when they're in um at the end of the winter is when they're in um their leanest condition they're they're at their lowest weight then and they're hungry you know they're ready to eat baby seals and some bears if they haven't been doing well um can be really desperately hungry and a a bear like that that's desperately hungry um can be very dangerous indeed they are um ambush hunters and you can you know they can attack you from around the corner of a building if they're on land and it's uh they're very fast they prefer ice obviously so i, I guess what i was asking earlier about the melting scenario is could they adapt if they were say a bit more grassland like if they had to be on land all the mm. time you mean yeah mm. well no it, it really it really doesn't um look like that's possible because they they have become so specialized in in their evolution from a brown bear into a polar bear as a new species they've become so specialized that what they need is the fat from seals and if they don't get that in their cold environment they're not going to be able to put on enough weight for say for females to have their cubs and for them to last through months and months of times of the year when there's nothing for them to eat so if mm. there if there was nothing and they were forced onto land they would not survive okay i want to chat to you more about that that speciation um uh talking point in a moment i just quickly want to go to a break i'll be back with you shortly my name is jim this is tnt De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. It's official. It was the warmest year on record. Gang, I want to congratulate all TNT listeners because this means you have survived the warmest year ever. In fact, you should get a t-shirt. No, not a t-shirt. You should get some type of strap shirt because it's so warm. A t-shirt, you'll be sweating in a second. Say it. I survived the warmest year ever. But guess what? You might have to get another t-shirt next year because we've got these climate crazies saying that next year will be warmer than this year, which is going to be interesting because of the fact that 
There's probably going to be a La Nina coming on next year, which would cool it down a little bit. But you wouldn't be able to notice anyway because the lion's share of the warming is occurring where nobody is living, like in the Arctic during its winter. But listen, you should pat yourself on the back. You did it. There's no question about it. If you're listening to my voice, you're still alive and you survived the warmest year ever. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Right. I've got cancer. I've been trying to tell the rest of you, but no one's listening. And I don't just mean you, ears. Eyes. Would you look in the damn toilet for once? Hands. Roll those sleeves and take a sample. And legs. Trot off to the doctor to get me looked at. Because bowel cancer can be successfully treated when detected early. Now look who's finally woken up. TNT. You're with Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Uh, Susan, your work um, mentions brown bears evolving into, into polar bears. That is really interesting. Would you mind just telling me a little bit about how that came about? Well, I've just recently written a book about this that's called polar bear evolution. Um, and I think there's three things that really come out of, of that. And that is um, that the transformation of a brown bear into a polar bear had to have happened really fast in order for this new species to actually survive in a habitat as severe as the Arctic. And that's how we're thinking about this, that what actually happened was that there was a population of brown bears, which are the most closely related species to polar bears, um, was pushed out of their normal land habitat by um, glaciers during um, an ice age and pushed out onto sea ice and that they, as a new habitat, and that they had to adapt to that new habitat. And in the process of trying to live out on that new habitat, that they actually became a new species. And what we're understanding about how evolution works is that that process has to happen actually within only a few generations in order for that to be successful. A few generations? Yes. So That's very I know that I know that you know people have been taught that it just takes you know thousands of years and but most of the evidence really points to um, the fact that the these processes most of the time, not always, most of the time that they happen very quickly. But you, I think you have to you have to think about what was actually involved. If you think about, um, a brown bear that's adapted to, you know, maybe living in um, northern Canada, for example, where they have tundra grizzlies, right, that live, and it's very cold up there, but they're living on the land. If they go out onto the sea ice and try and live all year round, what do they have to put up with? Well, it's even colder. It's windier. There, there isn't the same food that they're used to. And so they have a real, um, 
they have an adaptation to deal with, but in order, when they do that, um, it can actually, you know, flip, flip into this process that actually transforms it into another kind of animal. That is incredible that it happens so quickly. What, what do you think would have been the, the, the reason for that? Because, I mean, it, it doesn't seem very appealing to go into one of the most harsh, severe types of environments. Well, the, um, I've, I've developed um, uh, a hypothesis, a theory about how this works. And this is based on my PhD research. So this is a testable theory. It, it hasn't been proven correct yet, but this it is testable, which is what you want when you're looking at science. And that is that when there is a new habitat like that, um, that is available to be um, colonized is how we put it in, in this business is, you know, it's available for animals to move into, um, that it's not just any animal that would choose to do that. It would be an animal that has um, a really high tolerance to stress, to the stress of all these new things. It's, you know, that an animal that is really fearful and cautious about everything wouldn't be the animal that would um, be an explorer, basically, to move out into that into that new habitat. And that the, the idea is that um, that, um, sort of stress tolerance and that curiosity um, goes along with a particular um, type of thyroid hormo hormone metabolism that ties to um, fetal growth, to reproductive timing, um, to um, embryonic development, and to a whole bunch of other things that are tied together um, because of what thyroid hormone um, does in the body. And that when only a few animals with a particular kind of this um, stress tolerant behavior, when they go out on the ice and are mating together only with each other, that what happens is, is that, that that connection to the this thyroid hormone system actually changes the growth pattern that the animal is going through. And that one of the manifestations of that, for example, is a changing coat color. And we see it in other animals and that what happens in the very early stages is you get um, this piebald coat color popping up. It's like a black and white um, spotting that happens because of changes in the growth during embry embryonic development and fetal growth. And so it would mean that an early polar bear was probably um, a brown and white animal in the very early stages, and then gradually became completely white. That is very interesting. So when do you think this process might have occurred? Well, all of the evidence is now pointing to one to the fact that um, it would have happened during an ice age, which has we've had several of those. It's looking at to be most likely at about 140,000 years ago um, in Ireland. 
of all places. Huh. So in looking at all of the um, evidence and where it's likely, but there were um, brown bears in Ireland at that time. And how? <laughs> well, they because they started out in in Asia in and at about um, 100 in the 190 to 150,000 years, they spread all the way from, you know, the far, far Eastern Siberia, all the way to um, Great Britain. So there were brown bears all across that Asian and European continent at that time. And then this enormous um, ice age happened um, at about 140,000 years ago. And then there were glaciers coming down from the Arctic and they essentially covered almost all of Great Britain and would have pushed those bears off onto the ice. And it it looks like that that's um, that's where it happened. And then that that shift from brown to white, you said, happened fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, and that and that is what seems to be happening, and that happens in other animals. A lot of experimental um, work has gone in. You know, a lot of studies. Um, looking at how how fast these things can happen and it's the the thing is that it's not just one thing that changes so it's not just coat color but um a, a grit a brown bear has a big hump on its back it has really long claws it has a certain um shape of, of its skull but in the polar bear even early polar bears that all of that would have changed, it all changes together. It all has to change together. And that's why it looks like um, a really good candidate for the mechanism for controlling that is thyroid hormone because that's the hormone in our body that is um, responsible for coordinating all the things that go on. It's the hormone that um, adapts us like on a daily basis to changes in light and temperature, for example, that, that go on during the day. And so for an animal, that's the hormone that um, does all the daily adaptation and controls sort of how we go from day to night and how, you know, from cold to warm. And so it kind of makes sense that the same system would be involved in um, making that, change for when that change needs to be permanent, when you need to change from one species to another to adapt to an entirely new habitat. Does that make so sense? Which, yes. So, so which, okay. which other animals might be examples of the same mechanism? Well, one of the ones that I've looked at a lot is uh, domestic animals. And it really seems like that the domestic dog, for example, is the first one that I was looking at and that this transformation from a wolf to a domestic dog involved essentially the same process of a, a wolf, for example, um, moving in to an area where people were had a, a settlement. And that was, a, that was the new habitat. The new habitat was the area that humans had created by living in a settlement and a few stress tolerant animals that moved into that new habitat 
then um, transformed within a few generation to this animal that we call a dog. When you look at a dog and a wolf, you know, there are lots of differences. There is differences in when they reproduce, you know, there's physical and uh, physiological and behavioral differences. And when you're talking about speciation, you have to talk about all of those things changing together. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, though, do are dogs not a little bit different in the sense that they're essentially artificial? I mean, they're, they're for the most part, man-made. Well, they are now. But I'm talking about that very first transformation when they went right. from being, uh, you know, not a wolf, from, from being a wolf to a dog that could live with people. Once the dog was living with people, it gave people a chance to kind of be um, artificial, to have um, artificial selection rather than natural selection on that animal. And so you have people having more of the control and kind of manipulating what's been going on. And, and I try to think of things like that would have um, happened even in the early days um, when you're, we're not talking about breed development, but things like um, that maybe you wouldn't bother um, feeding animals that were hard to get along with. Right. And so then, then you're, you're kind of manipulating who's surviving and into the next generation. And that, that maybe a female that produced, you know, lots, lots of pups that were good natured and easy to get along with in the community, you would, you would make sure that she got food, even if the others didn't. And that you can kind of yes. manipulate the environment in that way to kind of make sure that who survives is, are the animals that work for living in your environment. And so in that way, I think even in the early days, humans could have um, had an influence on um, how dogs developed into what they are today. I'm really enjoying chatting to you, Susan, but I see now that time is running against us. So I guess, okay. I guess I'll have to, I guess I'll have to invite you back because this is so fascinating, but this is, <laughs> Let's just horseshoe back to the start then of the conversation that essentially what what we're talking about here is a polar bears are actually doing fine the computer models are way too hysterical and alarmist and essentially wrong uh the ice has been adjusting ever so slightly over the decades hasn't really impacted polar bears much and uh and and basically the moral of the story is we don't need to worry about polar bears. Have I, have I kind of got the gist of it? Well, yeah, and that's absolutely true. And and it's also true that you can't talk about the history of polar bears as a species without talking about climate change because they they are, you know, an animal that is used to climate change. And um, that's really what they're all about. How long have... So I, I think you said 150,000 years, more or less. 140,000 is is what looks okay. like the yeah. The, so not very long actually in evolutionary terms. So okay. So and so uh, let me see if I can get this question in. Compared to 140,000 years ago, to whenever that the first polar bear sort of came into being, um, have the numbers more or less stayed the same, or have they gone up or gone down, or what? They, they almost certainly have gone up and down over that time. I, we don't really know. We don't really know mm -hmm. because you hardly ever find 
polar bear fossils are very rare. So that's part of the problem mm. in trying to sort of tease out what's been going on. But um, almost certainly that's been going up and down. And just quickly, this is something that, that always fascinates me. Why are they in the Arctic region and not in the Antarctic region? Well, be, because they evolved from brown bears and brown bears were okay. um, largely okay. only in the Northern Hemisphere. So, yeah. yeah. And I guess the same thing applies into penguins. That's why you don't see them in the Arctic because they just, they just weren't there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, Susan, how can how can I uh, follow your work? Well, um, I'm I'm writing my blog. It's available. Um, it's called Polar Bear Science, and um, and people can contact me if they want. There's a contact me um, place on the, on my blog, and um, there's all of my books are listed there. And my latest book, as I said, is called uh, Polar Bear Evolution. And all, it's available on, on Amazon. Susan Crockford, thank you ever so much for joining me in the trenches. You're welcome. And I would be happy to come again and we can talk about evolution in more depth. I absolutely would love to have you back on because I, well, firstly, I love polar bears. I think they're extremely cute. <laughs> they are, they appeal to my emotion. They, they appeal to yeah. my wife's emotion and, and they are really wonderful animals. And I think there also there's a mystery about them because they live so far away from anything that we know that this, that they are fascinating. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I agree. I will, I will say this. I've often logged onto the internet looking for Arctic cams. You know, those live video feeds. Yeah. I struggled to, I struggled to find them, but I have found one or two where you can see a photograph of a, of a polar bear that's looking straight. It's got his nose in the camera or, or uh, you see his footprints or something. It's very, very funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there is, there is one that's set up on the west coast of Hudson Bay. And, uh, but it's usually only operating between October and November, which is when they come ah. ashore and they're waiting for the ice. So, um, but I watch it often to see what they're doing. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email you for that link because I also want to watch that one. Okay. But absolutely. thank you so much. Thanks so much, All right, Susan. Take and care. Uh, Thank you so much, Alex. I, I said it was a noob, but that is that Joel in the background there? No, that is that is Joel. Sorry, Joel. I I, I miss I miss named you. What's the word? Mistitled you. At least I didn't misgender you, because Joel does not look like a woman. Although I don't know what Kiwi woman looked like. <laughs> from from recent conversations we've had, Alex, apparently Kiwi women are not very good looking. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, send me an email, Jim Warfare at uh, tntradio.live. Uh, I apologize. Uh, don't don't send me hate mail. I'm only kidding about Kiwi woman. <laughs> I chat I chat to I chat to friends of mine in New Zealand, and uh, uh, they certainly don't look like hobbits, um, even though they live in Middle Earth. Um, all right, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I see the comments have been chatting. They've been chit chatting about polar bears. Uh, someone says you're polarizing, polarizing, ha ha, Alex, that's a good one, a polarizing conversation. That is the dad joke of the day. Uh, I really yes, enjoyed yes. that. <laughs> All right, uh, send me an email, as I said, Jim Warfare at TNT Radio Live. I will catch you tomorrow. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.